Hello again, I'm Richard Figge, and this is For Reading Out Loud. So good to have you with me this evening. Tonight's author is Alice Dunbar-Nelson, poet, essayist, diarist, activist. She was born in 1875 in New Orleans, Louisiana, to mixed-race parents. Her African-American, Anglo, Native American, and Creole heritage contributed to her complex understanding of gender, race, and ethnicity. Her first collection of stories, Violets and Other Tales, was published in 1895 when she was 20 years old. The stories and their language strike me for the most part as florid and Victorian. All the more striking, then, is her second collection, The Goodness of St. Rock and Other Stories, published only four years later remarkable for their real social and psychological bite. The gentle conclusion of tonight's story, set in New Orleans, may have satisfied her original readers, but it leaves unsolved the central problems of its gentle protagonist. Monsieur Fautier's Violin by Alice Dunbar-Nelson Slowly, one by one, the lights in the French opera go out until there is but a single glimmer of pale yellow flickering in the great dark space a few moments ago all a glitter with jewels and the radiance of womankind and a clash with music. Darkness now and silence and a great haunted hush over all save for the distant cheery voice of a stagehand humming a bar of the opera. The glimmer of gas makes a halo above the bowed white head of a little old man putting his violin carefully away in its case with aged, trembling, nervous fingers. Old Monsieur Fortier was the last one out every night. Outside the air was murky, foggy. Gas and electricity were but faint splotches of light on the thick curtain of fog and mist. Around the opera was a mighty bustle of carriages and drivers and footmen, with a car gaining headway in the street now and then, a howling of names and numbers, the laughter and small talk of cloaked society stepping slowly to its carriages, and the more bourgeois vocalization of the foot-passengers who streamed along and hummed little bits of music. The fog's denseness was confusing, too and at one moment it seemed that the little narrow street would become inextricably choked and remain so until some mighty engine would blow the crowd into atoms. It had been a crowded night, from around Toulouse Street, where led the entrance to the Troisièmes, from the Grand Stairway, from the entrance to the Quatrièmes, the human stream poured into the street, nearly all with a song on their lips. Monsieur Fortier stood at the corner, blinking at the beautiful ladies in their carriages. He exchanged a hearty salutation with the saloon-keeper at the corner, then, tenderly carrying his violin case, he trudged down Bourbon Street, a little, old, bent, withered figure, with shoulders shrugged up to keep warm, as though the faded brown overcoat were not thick enough. Down on Bayou Road, not far from Claiborne Street, was a house, little and old and queer, but quite large enough to hold Monsieur Fortier, a wrinkled dame, and a white cat. 
He was home but little, for on nearly every day there were rehearsals. Then on Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday nights, and twice Sundays, there were performances. So Mam Jeanne and the White Cat kept house almost always alone. Then when Monsieur Fortier was at home, why, it was practice, practice all the day, and smoke, snore, sleep at night. Altogether, it was not very exhilarating. Monsieur Fortier had played first violin in the orchestra ever since, well, no one remembered his not playing there. Sometimes there would come breaks in the seasons, and for a year the great building would be dark and silent. Then Monsieur Fortier would do jobs of playing here and there, one night for this ball, another night for that soirée dansante, and in the day work at his trade, that of a cigar-maker. But now for seven years there had been no break in the season, and the little old violinist was happy. There is nothing sweeter than a regular job and good music to play, music into which one can put some soul, some expression, and which one must study to understand. Dance music, of the frivolous, frothy kind deemed essential to soirees, is trivial, easy, uninteresting. So Monsieur Fortier, Mam Jeanne, and the White Cat lived a peaceful, uneventful existence out on Bayou Road. When the opera season was over in February, Monsieur went back to cigar-making, and the White Cat purred nonetheless contentedly. It had been a benefit tonight for the leading tenor, and he had chosen Roland de Roncevaux, a favorite this season, for his farewell. Ah, mon Dieu, mused the little monsieur, but how his voice had rung out bell-like, piercing above the chorus of the first act. Encore after encore was given, and the bravos of the troisièmes were enough to stir the most sluggish of pulses. Monsieur quickened his pace down Bourbon Street, as he sang the chorus to himself in a thin, old voice, and then, before he could see in the thick fog, he had run into two young men. "'I beg your pardon, messieurs,' he stammered. "'Most certainly,' was the careless response. Then the speaker, taking a second glance at the object of the rencontre, cried joyfully, "'Oh, Monsieur Fortier, is it you? Why, you are so happy!' "'singing your love-sonnet to your lady's eyebrow "'that you didn't see a thing but the moon, did you? "'And who is the fair one who should clog your senses so?' "'There was a deprecating shrug from the little man. "'Ma foi, but monsieur must know for sure "'that I am too old for love-songs. "'I know nothing save that I want that violin of yours. "'When is it to be mine, monsieur Fortier?' "'Never, never!' exclaimed monsieur. "'gripping on as tightly to the case "'as if he feared it might be wrenched from him. "'Me a lover, and to sell mon violon. "'Ah, so very foolish!' "'Martel,' said the first speaker to his companion "'as they moved on uptown, "'I wish you knew that little Frenchman. "'He is a unique specimen. "'He has the most exquisite violin I have seen in years, "'beautiful and mellow as a genuine Cremona.' and he can make the music leap, sing, laugh, sob, skip, wail, anything you like from under his bow when he wishes. It's something wonderful. We are good friends. Picked him up in my French town rambles. I've been trying to buy that instrument since... to throw it aside a week later, lazily inquired Martel. You're like the rest of these nineteenth-century vandals. You can see nothing picturesque that you do not wish to deface for a souvenir. 
you cannot even let simple happiness alone, but must needs destroy it in a vain attempt to make it your own or parade it as an advertisement. As for M. Fortier, he went right on with his song and turned into Bayou Road, his shoulders still shrugged high as though he were cold, and into the quaint little house where Mam Jeanne and the white cat, who always waited up for him at nights, were both nodding over the fire. It was not long after this that the opera closed, and Monsieur went back to his old out-of-season job. But somehow he did not do as well this spring and summer as always. There is a certain amount of cunning and finesse required to roll a cigar just so that Monsieur seemed to be losing. Whether from age or deterioration, it was hard to tell. Nevertheless, there was just about half as much money coming in as formerly, and the quaint little pucker between Monsieur's eyebrows, which served for a frown, came oftener and stayed longer than ever before. "'Mines,' he said one day to the white cat. He told all his troubles to her. It was of no use to talk to Mam Jeanne. She was too deaf to understand. "'Mines, we are getting poor. Your père get old, and his hands stay go no more rapidement, and there be no more soirées this day. Mines, if la saison don't hurry up, we shall eat very little meat.' and Mines curled her tail and purred. Before the summer had fairly begun, strange rumors began to float about in musical circles. Monsieur Mauge would no longer manage the opera, but it would be turned into the hands of Americans, a syndicate. Bah! These English-speaking people could do nothing unless there was a trust, a syndicate, a company immense and dishonest. It was going to be a guarantee business with a strictly financial basis. But worse than all this, the new manager who was now in France would not only procure the artists, but a new orchestra, a new leader. Monsieur Fortier grew apprehensive at this, for he knew what the loss of his place would mean to him. September and October came, and the papers were filled with accounts of the new artists from France, and of the new orchestra leader, too. He was described as a most talented, progressive, energetic young man. Monsieur Fortier's heart sank at the word progressive. He was anything but that. The New Orleans Creole blood flowed too sluggishly in his old veins. November came. The opera reopened. Monsieur Fortier was not re-engaged. Mines he said with a catch in his voice that strongly resembled a sob. Mines, we must go hungry some time. Ah, mon pauvre violon! Ah, mon Dieu! They put us out, and they will not have us. Never mind, we will sing anyhow. And drawing his bow across the strings, he sang in his thin, quavering voice, Salut d'amour, chaste et pure. It is strange, what a peculiar power of fascination former haunts have for the mind. The criminal, after he has fled from justice, steals back and skulks about the scene of his crime. The employee, thrown from work, hangs about the place of his former industry. The schoolboy, truant or expelled, peeps in at the school gate and taunts the good boys within. Monsieur Fortier was no exception. Night after night of the performances, he climbed the stairs of the opera and sat, 
an attentive listener to the orchestra with one ear inclined to the stage and a quizzical expression on his wrinkled face. Then he would go home and pat Mines and fondle the violin. Ah, Mines, those new players, not one bit can they play. Such tones, Mines, such tones, all the time, portamento, ah, oh, so very bad. Ah, mon cher violon, we can play. And he would play and sing a romance and smile tenderly to himself. At first it used to be in the deuxièmes that Monsieur Fortier went into the front seats, but soon they were too expensive, and after all one could hear just as well in the fourth row as in the first. After a while even the rear row of the deuxièmes was too costly, and the little musician wended his way with the plebeians around on Toulouse Street and climbed the long, tedious flight of stairs into the troisièmes. It made no difference to be one row higher. It was more to the liking, after all. One felt more at home up here among the people. If one was thirsty, one could drink a glass of wine or beer being passed about by the libretto boys, and the music sounded just as well. But it happened one night that Monsieur could not even afford to climb the Toulouse Street stairs. To be sure, there was yet another gallery, the Quatrièmes, where the peanut boys went for a dime, but Monsieur could not get down to that yet. So he stayed outside until all the beautiful women in their warm wraps, a bright-hued, chattering throng, came down the grand staircase to their carriages. It was on one of these nights that Courset and Martel found him shivering at the corner. "'Hello, Monsieur Fortier,' cried Courset. "'Are you ready to let me have that violin yet?' "'For shame!' interrupted Martel. Fifty dollars, you know,' continued Corset, taking no heed of his friend's interpolation. Monsieur Fortier made a courtly bow. "'If Monsieur will call at my house on the morrow, he may have more violon,' he said huskily, then turned abruptly on his heel and went down Bourbon Street, his shoulders drawn high as though he were cold." When Cosset and Martel entered the gate of the little house on Bayou Road the next day, there floated out to their ears a wordless song, thrilling from the violin, a song that told more than speech or tears or gestures could have done of the utter sorrow and desolation of the little old man. They walked softly up the short red brick walk and tapped at the door. Within. Monsieur Fortier was caressing the violin, with silent tears streaming down his wrinkled gray face. There was not much said on either side. Cosset came away with the instrument, leaving the money behind while Martel grumbled at the essentially sordid, mercenary spirit of the world. Monsieur Fortier turned back into the room, after bowing his visitors out with old-time French courtliness, and turning to the sleepy white cat, said with a dry sob, Mines, there's only me and you now. About six days later, Cosset's morning dreams were disturbed by the announcement of a visitor, Hastily doing a toilet, he descended the stairs,
to find Monsieur Fortier nervously pacing the hall floor. "'I come for bring back your money, yes. I cannot sleep, I cannot eat. I only cry and think and wish for mon violon, and Mines and the old woman too. They mope and look bad too, all for mon violon. I try for to use that money, but it burn and sting like blood money. I feel like I done sold my child. I cannot go at l'opera no more. I think of mon violon. I starve before I leave without. My heart he is broke. I die for mon violon. Cosset left the room and returned with the instrument. Monsieur Fortier, he said, bowing low as he handed the case to the little man, take your violin. It was a whim with me, a passion for you. And, as for the money, why keep that too? It was worth a hundred dollars to have possessed such an instrument even for six days. We have time for another story by Alice Dunbar Nelson. What about La Juanita? If you've never lived in Mandeville, you cannot appreciate the thrill of wholesome, satisfied joy which sweeps over its inhabitants every evening at five o'clock. It is the hour of the day for the arrival of the new camellia, the happening of the day. As early as four o'clock, the trailing smoke across the horizon of the treacherous Lake Pontchartrain appears, and Mandeville knows that the hour for its siesta has passed, and that it must array itself in its coolest and fluffiest garments, and go down to the pier to meet this sole connection between itself and the outside world, the little puffy side-wheel steamer that comes daily from New Orleans and brings the mail and the news. On this particular day, there was an air of suppressed excitement about the little knot of people which gathered on the pier. To be sure, there were no outward signs to show that anything unusual had occurred. The small folks danced with the same glee over the worn boards and peered down with daring excitement into the perilous depths of the water below. The sun Fast sinking in a gorgeous glow behind the pines of the Chefuncta region far away, danced his mischievous rays in much the same manner as he did every other day. But there was a something in the air, a something not tangible, but mysterious, subtle. You could catch an indescribable whiff of it in your inner senses by the half-eager, furtive glances that the small crowd clasped at La Juanita. Gargao, le bateau, said one dark-tressed mother to the wide-eyed baby. Eh oui, she added, in an undertone to her companion. Voilà, la Juanita. La Juanita, you must know, was the pride of Mandeville, the adored, the admired of all, with her petite, half-Spanish, half-French beauty. Whether rocking in the shade of the Cherokee rose-covered gallery of Grandpère Colomb's big house, her fair face bonnet-shaded, her dainty hands gloved to keep the sun from too close an acquaintance, or splashing the spray from the bow of her little pirogue, or fluffing her skirts about her tiny feet on the pier, she was the pet and ward of Montville, as it were, La Juanita Alvarez, since Madame Alvarez was a widow, 
and Grandpère Colomb was strict and stern. And now La Juanita had set her small foot down with a passionate stamp before Grandpère Colomb's very face and tossed her black curls about her willful head and said she would go to the pier this evening to meet her mercer. All Mandeville knew this and cast its furtive glances alternately at La Juanita with two big pink spots in her cheeks and at the entrance to the pier, expecting Grandpère Colomb and a scene. The sun cast red glows and violet shadows over the pier, and the pines murmured a soft little vesper hymn among themselves up on the beach, as the new camellia swung herself in, crabby, sidewise, like a fat old gentleman going into a small door. There was the clang of an important bell, the scream of a hoarse little whistle, and Montville rushed to the gangplank to welcome the outside world. Juanita put her hand through a waiting arm and tripped away with her mercer, big and blonde and brawny. An American, bah, said the little mother of the black eyes, and Montville sighed sadly and shook its head and was sorry for Grandpère Colomb. This was Saturday, and the big regatta would be Monday. Ah, that regatta, such a one as Mondeville had never seen. There were to be boats from Madisonville and Amity, from Lewisburg and Covington, and even far away Knott's Point. There was to be a Class A and Class B and Class C, and the little French girls of the town flaunted their ribbons down the one oak-shaded, lake-kissed street and dared anyone to say theirs were not the favorite colors. In Class A was entered La Juanita, Captain Mercer Grangeman, colors pink and gold. Her name, her colors. What impudence! Of course, not being a Mandevillian, you could not understand the shame of Grandpère Colomb at this. Was it not bad enough for his petite Juanita, his Spanish blossom, his hope of a family that had held itself proudly aloof from those Américains from time immemorial, to have smiled upon this mercer, this pale-eyed youth? Was it not bad enough for her to demean herself by walking upon the pier with him? For a boat, his boat, un bateau américain to be named La Juanita. Oh, the shame of it! Grandpère Colomb prayed a devout prayer to the Virgin that La Juanita should be capsized. Monday came, clear and blue and stifling. The waves of hot air danced on the sands and adown the one street merrily. Glassily calm laid the Pontchartrain. Heavily still hung the atmosphere. Madame Alvarez cast an inquiring glance toward the sky. Grandpère Colomb chuckled. He had not lived on the shores of the treacherous Lake Pontchartrain for nothing. He knew its every mood, its petulances and passions. He knew this glassy warmth and what it meant. Chuckling again and again, he stepped to the gallery and looked out over the lake, and at the pier where lay the boats rocking and idly tugging at their moorings. La Juanita, in her rose-scented room, tied the pink ribbons on her dainty frock, and fastened cloth of gold roses at her little waist. 
It was said that just before the crack of the pistol, La Juanita's tiny hand lay in Mercer's, and that he bent his head and whispered softly so that the surrounding crowd could not hear, Juanita mine, if I win, you will? Oui, mon Marcel, if you win. In another instant the white wings were off, scudding before the rising breeze, dipping their glossy boat sides into the clear water, straining their cordage in their intense efforts to reach the stake-boats. Mandeville indiscriminately distributed itself on piers, large and small, bathhouse tops, trees, and craft of all kinds, from pirogue, dory, and pine raft, to pretentious cat-boat and shell-schooner. Mandeville cheered and strained its eyes after all the boats, but chiefly was its attention directed to La Juanita. Ah, voilà, it is ahead. Mais non, c'est un autre. La Juanita, La Juanita. Regardez grand-père Colombe. Old Colombe, on the big pier with Madame Alvarez and his granddaughter, was intently straining his weather-beaten face in the direction of Knott's Point his back resolutely turned upon the scudding white wings. A sudden chuckle of grim satisfaction caused La Petite's head to toss petulantly, but only for a minute, for Grandpère Colomb's chuckle was followed by a shout of dismay from those whose glance had followed his. You must know that it is around Knott's Point that the Storm King shows his wings first, for the little peninsula guards the entrance which leads into the southeast waters of the stormy Rigolets and the blustering gulf. You would know, if you lived in Mountville, that when the pints on Knott's Point darken, and when the water shows white beyond like the teeth of a hungry wolf, it is time to steer your boat into the mouth of some one of the many calm bayous which float silently through St. Tammany Parish into the lake. Small wonder that the cry of dismay went up now, for Knott's Point was black, with a lurid light overhead, and the roar of the grim southeast wind came ominously over the water. La Juanita clasped her hands and strained her eyes for her namesake. The racers had rounded the second stake-boat, and the course of the triangle headed them directly for the lurid cloud. You should have seen Grandpère Colomb then. He danced up and down the pier in a perfect frenzy. The thin, pale lips of Madame Alvarez moved in a silent prayer. La Juanita stood coldly silent. And now you could see that the advance guard of the southeast force had struck the little fleet. They dipped and scurried and rocked, and you could see the sails being reefed hurriedly and almost hear the rigging creak and moan under the strain. Then the wind came up the lake and struck the town with a tumultuous force. The waters rose and heaved in the long, sullen groundswell, which betokened serious trouble. There was a rush of lake craft to shelter. Heavy gray waves boomed against the breakwaters and piers, dashing their brackish spray upon the strained watchers. Then, with a shriek and a howl, the storm burst full with blinding sheets of rain and a great hurricane of gulf wind that threatened to blow the little town away. La Juanita was proud. When Grandpère and Madame led her away in the storm, 
though her face was white and the rose mouth pressed close, not a word did she say, and her eyes were as bright as ever before. It was foolish to hope that the frail boats could survive such a storm. There was not even the merest excuse for shelter out in the waters, and when Lake Pontchartrain grows angry, it devours without pity. Your tropical storm is soon over, however, and in an hour the sun struggled through a gray and misty sky over which the wind was sweeping great clouds. The raindrops hung diamond-like on the thick foliage, but the long ground swell still boomed against the breakwaters and showed white teeth far to the south. As chickens creep under shelter after a rain, so the people of Mandeville crept out again on the piers, on the bathhouses, on the breakwater edge, and watched eagerly for the boats. Slowly upon the horizon appeared white sails, and the little craft swung into sight. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, counted Mandeville. Every one coming in. Bravo! and a great cheer that swept the whole length of the town from the post office to Black Bayou went up. Bravo! Every boat was coming in. But was every man? This was a sobering thought, and in the hush which followed it you could hear the Q and C train thundering over the great lake bridge miles away. Well, they came in to the pier at last, La Juanita in the lead, and, as Captain Mercer landed, he was surrounded by a voluble, chattering, anxious throng that loaded him with questions in patois, in broken English, and in French. He was no longer an Américain now, he was a hero. When the other boats came in, and Mondeville saw that no one was lost, there was another ringing bravo and more chattering of questions. We heard the truth, finally. When the storm burst, Captain Mercer suddenly promoted himself to an admiralship and assumed command of his little fleet. He had led them through the teeth of the gale to a small inlet on the coast between Bayou Lacombe and Knott's Point, and there they had waited until the storm passed. Loud were the praises of the other captains for Admiral Mercer, Profuse were the thanks of the sisters and sweethearts as he was carried triumphantly on the shoulders of the sailors down the wharf to the Maison Colombe. The crispness had gone from Juanita's pink frock, and the cloth of gold roses were well-nigh petalless, but the hand that she slipped into his was warm and soft, and the eyes that were upturned to Mercer's blue ones were shining with admiring tears. And even Grandpère Colomb, as he brewed on the Cherokee rose-covered gallery a fiery punch for the heroes, was heard to admit that sometimes those Américains can most be like one Frenchman. And we danced at the betrothal supper the next week. You've been listening to Monsieur Fortier's Violin and La Juanita by Alice Dunbar Nelson. For all her commitment to social and political issues, in her stories her focus is always foremost on the humanity of her characters. Didacticism, she said, is the death of art. 
I'm Richard Figgy, and this has been for Reading Out Loud. That's it for tonight. I hope you'll join me again next week. In the meantime, be well, be happy, stay safe, all the best. Thank you.